Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. The New Testament book of Colossians and Colossians in chapter number two. The entire series has been building up to this one message. And this one message right here gives us a great understanding of what is going on. Why is the church of Colossae needing to make a stand, preparing to make a stand, and what are they making a stand from? Now with this, we know that Satan has never turned his tricks. He's never tried to deviate. He uses the same thing over and over. So the same thing that is true in the church of Colossae back in the first century is the very same things that we are dealing with in uh, religion today. Remember that religion is the opposite of true biblical Christianity. True biblical Christianity deals with the idea of a personal relationship with the Lord, recognizing that we are inadequate, that it has to be God for everything. Whereas religion says we must do something and focuses on our works, focuses on our ability, and puts the attention away from God. With this in mind, turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Colossians in chapter number two. The book of Colossians in chapter number two, we covered uh, verses one through seven this morning, which was very key in leading up to this. But now we come to the main event, starting at verse number eight. The book of Colossians chapter two, and notice with me in verse number eight. The Bible says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. Him, which is the head of all principality and power. And whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses." blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, 
or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the ruminants of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not handle not, which are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And if you're the habit of marking things in your Bible, when you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 2 and notice with me in verse number 10, the phrase, complete in him. And with the Lord's help, we want to really take some time. Maybe even imagine you're in a college class. This is advanced teaching. This is biblical teaching. This is helpful teaching. But let's go together in a classroom setting and let's take some time as we walk through this passage and see the important fight that's going to go on at the Church of Colossae as the Apostle Paul is giving the instruction and that we may we learn for ourselves so we are protected against the same fight of religion that it continually tries to attack biblical Christianity. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, Lord, thank you for being a great God who loves us and cares for us. And as I come up to you, I recognize my own infirmities, my own weakness. I know in my flesh, I wish I was healthy enough to preach this message the way that I think it ought to be done. But Lord, I can trust you. Lord, for this next time that we have together, you would control my throat, you control my nose, you would let the aftermath of the surgery not to play a factor for the purpose that this message can live on. I would love to see this message be used to be a help to so many other people outside of this church. I believe that if we instruct this well and teach well enough, that it would truly be something that's life-changing to so many people who need this spiritual understanding. Because of this and because of how I see it, it can be used, Lord, I now sacrifice it to you. Lord, you do whatever you want as you see fit. Lord, if you make this so that way it's unlistenable to anyone else but our church right now, that's up to you. Whatever you choose to do, we can trust you. You just get your own work accomplished for these folks, for right here, for right now. I'm asking that you would give them spiritual discernment, give them wisdom, give them an interest in your Bible, that you open their eyes that they may see. And tonight we do pray that you would open up our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. 
Make us go wow tonight as we see what a wise, wonderful God you truly are. Direct and you work. Get victory in people's lives because of this. In your name we pray. Amen. Today, a very misused word in Christian circles is the word balance. Anybody who spends time around me knows I despise that word. Now, you've heard me say I despise the word. Let's explain why. They use the idea of balance for all areas of the Christian life. They state that we need to have our doctrines and beliefs in balance. They believe that we should have our home life and ministry life in balance. It's one of those buzzwords that is used in Christianity all over, including um, people who believe like us. It is a word that has crept in, and it's going to violate many of these principles that we see here, but they have. it's a nice word. It's a logical word. It's a word people can understand. Everything's got to be in balance. It's got to be in balance. It's got to be in balance. The problem with that word is that it carries the idea that we take from one side and put to another, if you can imagine a scale. So if I want my home life and my ministry life in balance, it carries the idea that I've got to take something from one side and place on the other. So I've got to take something from the ministry so that way I don't neglect my family. Or I got to take away from my family and put it on the ministry side. I heard of a famous well-known preacher, some of you may have known him, that told his kids one day, I'm sorry, God has given me the task of saving America, so I've got to neglect you to do what God's told me to do. Absolutely not. By the way, he became a very big, well-known preacher in America. But is that what God has asked us to do is neglect areas of our life so we could accomplish in other areas of his life? But that's where the word balance comes in. It is not a biblical word. It is a philosophy word of the world. It's not a biblical idea. The correct biblical phrase is to be complete in Christ, which is the whole matter of this passage here, that here God wants us to be complete in him. Complete in Christ. This carries the idea that we have all God intended us to have in the portions that God intended us to have it. He wants us to be complete. He wants us to have everything he desires for us, not lacking or neglecting any part of our life. God doesn't want an area neglected. He doesn't want an area that's taken away from. He wants us to have everything Christ wants us to have the way that Christ wants us to have it. This adds to the idea that God-given priorities never conflict. If you've never been in one of my classes where I've told you to write this down, write this down now. God-given priorities never conflict. If I could scream that to the housetops, God-given priorities never conflict. What do we mean by that? Well, God has given to me to be a father, a husband, a pastor, and a citizen. Without a doubt, those are things that I'm supposed to do. By the way, if I neglected one of those areas, then rightfully so, people would look down on me, right? 
I'm to be all of those things the way that God wanted me to be. I'm to be the pastor God wanted me to be. I'm to be the father God wanted me to be. I'm supposed to be the husband God wanted me to be. I'm supposed to be the citizen of the country I reside in the way that God wanted me to be. So if my wife needs me during ministry time, God-given priorities never conflict. I have a responsibility to my wife as much as I do the ministry. So if I'm trying to work on a sermon and my kids come up and say, dad, I really need you. Is it wasting God's time to pay attention to my kids? No, not at all. God given priorities, never conflict. We have to get this in our mind that we're not neglecting the ministry. We're not neglecting our family if we're to do things God's given us to do. For example, we we ask our church folks to be faithful in soul winning. We have organized a Saturday soul winning where people can get together. Am I stealing away from your family time by asking you to go soul winning? No. God-given priorities never conflict. We know that God has given us certain things to do and we can do them. Does that make sense? You make this application in your life. Uh, some of us, including me, need to work better on this. For example, God has given me a body to take care of. If, if I decide, if God's given me to rest for that day, am I wasting my day by not writing sermons? No. God-given priorities never conflict. So I don't have to feel guilty for taking a day off. Does it make sense? God-given priorities never conflict. Now, for those of you who are not workaholics, that may not mean a lot to you. For those of you who are, uh, that means quite a bit. Uh, because I know some of you scream in your mind if you have to take a day off. <laughs> God-given priorities never conflict. And we have to understand that. It is never wasted time for me to spend time with my children as they're growing up. It was not wasted time. Time, I could have been writing sermons or helping more people out. No, God-given priorities never conflict. You see, we're not trying to keep the idea balanced and I'm balancing my home life with everything else on a teeter-totter, just trying not to fall. I'm supposed to be completing Christ, doing what God has given me to do for that time, for that period. God-given priorities never conflict. My goal is not to be in balance. My goal is to be complete in Christ. Good. When we start taking away things from what God wanted us to have, we start to mess with the doctrine and teachings as well. For example, if I start neglecting my family, then how can I explain that? I have to tell, uh, somehow explain away the verses that say I'm supposed to take care of my family. As a workaholic, I have to explain away the verses that say I have to take care of my body and explain them away. And you see either I'm right or the Bible's right. And so I should line up with what the Bible says and take care of my body and the times I'm supposed to take care of my body. Good, I'm preaching to myself post-surgery, so this is good. You just listen. But you, I'm tr I think you could relate and understand this. We're not balancing. We're trying to be everything that God has given us to do the way that he told us to do it. It's being obedient in him. When we start taking away from one side, we start messing with the doctrines. We have to explain away our disobedience of the areas. Then we open the door for cults to prey upon people who are not complete in Christ. And the complete 
our knowledge of Christ. So if you can imagine you are trying to keep in balance, what happens is if you start to lose your balance, you're going to have to find something else to lean on. You become very vulnerable while you're trying to stay in balance. But if you are anchored and complete in Christ, then I'm not vulnerable to someone trying to help me and show me a different way. Make sense? Now, the cult that was at Colossae was an early form of Gnosticism. <laughs> Gnosticism was a heresy that was beginning to form during this time that the later Bible penmen had to deal with. Gnosticism would develop into its fully developed form into the second century where it was professed in every part of the civilized world. So what we see is the very beginning seed parts that are beginning to form. By the time of the second century, it is full-blown bloom and it is going to spread like wildfire and it will never go away. We're always going to have to contend with this idea of Gnosticism. The Gnostic schools were numerous and zealously attended. The word Gnostic comes from a word simply means to know. That's what they love. They love their knowledge. And they had a knowledge that other people didn't have. We'll talk about that in a second. The Gnostics thought they had a special knowledge that can only be revealed to those that were initiated into their secrets. For example, did you know that there was a missing book of the Bible? We have it. You don't. You have to be a part of us so you could see this missing book of the Bible. That's Gnosticism. That's part of the cults. That's part of what's going on is they want to deceive people with secret knowledge. God doesn't work in secret. He has openly revealed everything he wants us to know. But people don't like that open knowledge. They want secret knowledge. Why? It puffeth up. I know something you don't know. I know knowledge you don't have. I know about the aliens that have been invading everyone for a while. And they come up with this secret knowledge and you have to be a part of them to truly understand that knowledge. That is Gnosticism. It may not be aliens. It may be some secret language, missing book of the Bible, other good stuff that they may be interested in, conspiracy theories and whatnot. D.M. Panton outlined the main features of full-grown Gnosticism. By the way, he did this in the 1800s, but the list still is solid. What is full-blown Gnosticism? What are the tenets of it? Historically, it absorbed non-Christian thought into the Christian faith. This is going to be a big deal, that all the time they were borrowing the thinking of the world and mixing it into the Christian knowledge. Philosophically, it lodged sin in matter. Therefore, it repudiated the creator as either impotent or evil. Gnosticism liked to say that evil resides in the world, meaning in matter itself, whether it's people or things or animals or whatnot. So therefore, the creator who created things must have either been stupid, powerless, or evil himself to create evil in the world. By the way, that is a common thing even today. People would like to blame God for evil in the world and say he created everything, he therefore had to create evil. See, people become very vulnerable there. Practically, the numerous Gnostic schools prohibited marriage as multiplying and curing matter. If you believe that 
matter is evil, and by the way, you are made up of matter, well, don't marry so that way you don't have any more matter. Stop having evil little kids. Stop multiplying evil into the world. Similarity, <laughs> numerous Gnostic schools prohibited the eating of certain types of food, such as wine and meat, as being inherently evil. That you can't eat this, this is evil. You can't drink this, this is evil. And they started to do dietary restrictions, saying that it's not that it wasn't good for you. It was the idea that it was evil and that it's going to produce more evil in the world. Theologically, the Jehovah of the Old Testament was portrayed as the tribal God of Israel. He was denounced as an alien and hostile deity. By the way, this thought still permeates. People imagine that the God of the Old Testament is different than the love of Christ of the New Testament. They think that God of the Old Testament was this mean guy who just loved to rain down fire and kill people if you didn't do what he said. Whereas Jesus is the milk toast. God is love and he loves everyone. And they have two separate views of God. This is that Gnosticism. This is that idea. By the way, I told you it started and caught on fire the second century and has never been put out ever since. And by the way, if you have that view of God, you're going to be very vulnerable to attack and people trying to persuade you that what you believe is wrong. Christology, it separated Jesus from Christ, denying both the deity and the humanity of Christ. We know that Jesus is God robed in flesh. He was 100% God in 100% flesh. Gnosticism loves to deny that. They love to say that Jesus was not God. He may have had aspects of God or been filled with a spark of divine spark, but he wasn't really God. And this is something that's always under attack. Inevitably, the belief sank finally into irreparable apostasy. Apostasy is not merely corruption of truth. It is the total change of truth or a complete abandonment of the faith previously held. And we see this over and over, that what happens, they just crash and burn, and their final form is completely different than biblical Christianity. And that it starts again with grabbing more people, developing a different system of belief, but it follows the same suit over and over. The Gnostic cults still exist in modern times. We'll cover a little bit of them. Our emphasis is not put the uh, spotlight on the cults, but rather say this is still a fight today. And that we have to be aware of it. This hasn't gone away. This is something we have to be able to stand against today. This kind of thing is in its earliest state was being circulated in the time of the writing of the epistle of Colossae. So Paul is dealing with these same things. And we're going to walk through the book of Colossians chapter 2 as Paul begins to nail it down one by one and nail down and show the truth and how these are false errors. This religious brew was made even more potent by the addition of some Jewish ingredients and some toxic flavoring of mysticism. We'll get into mysticism here in a bit, but it is the secret spooky spiritual brew. They are propagated by high-sounding nonsense as an improvement upon Christianity. We hear this today. We need to update Christianity. We can make it to our modern times. We need to uh, keep it up to date. Uh, that 
they're always going to be trying to give an alternative to biblical Christianity, to historical Christianity. In this passage, Paul begins to fire at the cult of Colossae by tackling five major errors of this cult. They were advocating, this cult was advocating intellectualism. We're smart. We have secret knowledge. Ritualism. You have to follow these rituals in order to be right with God. Legalism. You have to do these certain things in order to be right with God. Mysticism. This is a certain way to call God and talk to God and get secret knowledge and secret powers. And asceticism. Uh, not saying that word right, but that carries the idea that we have to abstain from all these things in our life and follow these certain rules. So let's cover them one by one. The first thing I want to show you in this passage here is this fight against intellectualism. The Apostle Paul says, if you don't mind, in verse number eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. He warned you, beware lest anyone try to spoil you through philosophy. Philosophy is a big deal. Today, people have their own philosophy. What is philosophy? Philosophy is people's reasoning out of how they view life. And they have a philosophy of life. And you need to be careful with people's philosophy that if it doesn't match up with biblical theology, that philosophy is wrong. What we should do is our theology should affect our philosophy. Meaning that how we see God should affect how we see life. People try to take their philosophy and try to make their God match their philosophy. We have to be careful with this. What does the Bible say? The idea of spoil carries the idea of those things that are stolen during a robbery. So it says, beware lest any man spoil you, steal these things. What things? Our belief in Christ, our knowledge of who God is, through philosophy and vain deceit. People want to talk you out of your belief in Christ. They want to explain to you why your belief in the Bible is wrong. In classical Greek, the words used of spoil were used as carrying off a man's daughter. That's what the word spoiled carried with it. You're carrying off a man's daughter. I'm a father of two daughters. I would very much feel violated if someone stole my girls. Carried them off, carried them away. So this is that same violation. He says, beware, they're going to steal off something precious to you and they're going to rob you blind and you won't even realize it until it's too late. You understand this becomes dangerous. Those who persuade people to abandon truth for errors are seducers and robbers. Human reasoning or philosophy has limitation. We understand that. We can only reason what we know about. And we don't know everything. Amen. We're very limited. Some truths are beyond the scope of human reasoning. The truth of the Bible that doesn't come from man, but is a product of divine inspiration. So people have a hard time understanding the Bible because they can't reason out that there's a God who wrote all these things. There's a God who was able to predict 200 years before the events certain specific aspects. Those of you at camp might remember some of those things that I... God knows everything, but human reasoning cannot rationalize it. They will try to take it away. They'll try to say, listen, 
The Bible doesn't have miracles, and there's plenty of Bible colleges that will teach that the Bible doesn't have miracles. So listen here. God couldn't predict it what happened, so there happened to be seven Isaiahs. There were five Moseses. You see, the people, God didn't cause the Red Sea to part. What that word technically meant, it was the Reed Sea. And so that Reed Sea was only ankle deep, uh, knee deep. And so what happened is they got there and God caused a wind. And it just dried up that water. They were able to walk on dry land. Which I guess poses a bigger miracle how Pharaoh's army drowned in ankle deep water. (laughs) But they're always trying to explain away the Bible. They're trying to explain away and rationalize why the Bible's not true. And all you have to do is Google. Please don't Google. (laughs) But anything that I say, you're going to find the opposite of Google. Someone is going to explain. Wikipedia is not even better. Wikipedia will say how I'm wrong and they're right and what a rational explanation is for this. And they want to explain away people's faith logically steal your faith in the Lord. Paul calls human philosophy vain deceit. They're lying to you and they're puffed up about it. I'm smarter than you. There's no humbleness whatsoever about it. I'm smarter than you and you better listen to me because you're a dumb idiot. And that's what they come across as. It was human philosophy that the cute cult at Colossae were marketing. They were selling intellectualism. They were selling human philosophy. During Paul's day, there was a great movement within the Hellenistic Jews. The word Hellenistic carries the idea that they were Greekified. Remember that Alexander the Great, when he conquered the world at 330 BC, he went around spreading Greek culture, Greek city, Greek alphabet, Greek language, Greek everything. The Jewish people who were also scattered about began to adopt this Greek philosophy and they began to mix it together. These Jews admired Greek philosophy, which Greek philosophy, they just loved to think. They would just, nothing would make her happier not to have a job and just sit there and get paid to think useless stuff all day. This movement was a great advocate of Philo of Alexandria. If uh, you've taken any of my courses before, uh, this is a big bad guy of history. Philo was not a good thing. Even though he's marketed as a great hero of the faith, he is not. He was a great admirer of the philosopher Plato. Now Plato was a very smart guy. He he explained a lot of things in human rationale. He had a, a a student by the name of Socrates. And Socrates had a student by the name of Aristotle. All three of those were great intellectual men. However, intellectual men without the compass of the Bible are just going to be off because they don't have something anchored it onto. So Philo loved Plato. And let's see what we could do to mix this belief of Christianity and try to mix it with Plato and his idea. He became obsessed with synthesizing Greek philosophy and Jewish religion. He employed allegory and platonic philosophy to his exegesis or interpretation of the scripture. All right, those are big words. What does that mean? That means you don't see scripture as literal. What you have to do is you have to think about it, man. And you just have to let the butterflies alight. You just have to let it just settle for a while. And you concentrate on it. And eventually a great truth would just... Emerge from the words, man. (laughs) 
what would happen is that he's not looking for what does the Bible say. He's trying to look and say, based off of how we view life, we, that's how we interpret the scriptures. So if you don't believe something's true, when you read the Bible and the Bible says opposite, you have to explain away the scriptures. This became a very common way of interpreting scripture. Instead of interpreting literally, you're looking for signs, wonders. You're looking for how it makes you feel. You're waiting to see that one thing that just strikes a chord and just rings true to you. You're trying to find your truth, man. Through this method, they were deriving all sorts of fantasiful interpretations of biblical text. We're not going to take the time to go through all of this stuff, but it was very much uh, once upon a time ago in a land far, far away type stuff that they were mixing in with the Bible. Whether it was vampires in the Old Testament, uh, whether it was, it was all kinds of things that they would mix up. It has plagued the church ever since. It has not gone away. People have still tried to say, well, the way I read my Bible is I'm trying to find what it means to me. Nothing like trying to say, ask someone how their Bible reading is. Well, I was reading my Bible today. There was a beautiful butterfly that just landed in my cup of coffee and I just saw the rays going over there and it inspired me so much. Good. What did God speak to you about? Let me tell you, I was so inspired. Good. What did God speak to you about? Let me tell you, I'm so inspired and happy today. I think we're missing the point here, buddy. I've had conversations like that with people. God speaks to us through his word. I appreciate nature and I appreciate that God is a good God, the God of creation but he speaks to us through his word, not through coffee. I don't care what kind of latte milk that you have that swirls together and makes a little heart or two hands praying or whatever else. God chosen to express truth through words. The tradition of man, as it goes on, it talks about in verse number eight, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men. The tradition of man is a neutral word of passing down the teacher uh, teaching to a student. So the, on its surface, what it is is someone teaching another person. It's a neutral statement as it is. But in this case here, it refers to the cult's claim to be able to transmit secret Gnostic mysteries to its initiative. So what they do is that, hey man, instead of going to that church where they preach the Bible, if you really want to know secret knowledge, you come join us. And if you join our club and do the sacred handshake and then you match the steps and you get to the 13th level, we'll open it up and let you know the secret knowledge that we have. And people like, man, I want that secret knowledge. It's better than reading my Bible. And by the way, it is. You know, by reading your Bible's work, that's why a lot of people don't do it. They'd rather work hard to get some secret knowledge that they didn't have to work for by themselves. They want someone to tell them magical knowledge rather than spend time in asking God to open their eyes to behold wonderful things out of their law. The expression rudiments of this world seems to refer to the elementary lessons in divine truth that make up so much of the Old Testaments. The rudiments of this world. That's a great expression. The Jewish religion was designed basically for a biblically illiterate people. The Old Testament was written to people who didn't know their Bible. Now as you look at that, think about it. Okay, yeah. Did uh, Adam know his Bible? There was no Bible to know. 
Did the Jewish people wandering in the wilderness know their Bibles? No. <laughs> Did uh, King Saul know his Bible? <laughs> Did all the kings and chronicles of Israel? No. So you see, there's, we're writing to a lot of people who did not know their Bibles. And so God was communicating basic truths to help people who didn't know their Bible to bring them from the known to the unknown, to bring them along. It's not doctrinal courses. It is elementary courses. It belongs to the kindergarten stage of divine revelation. All right, so this is going to start to make sense to you as we start putting it together with the cults and everything else. They're stuck in picture books because that's all they could read. Some of you have never read a college textbook. You're like, I'd rather have the comic books. One pain, one thing, or worse today, memes. There are so many people trying to express theology in memes. Well, you can't reduce it down to one little cartoon. But people, that's how they know. They want quick pictures. They want quick little sentiments. They don't want to do the study. They don't want to be at the level where they can understand it. They want the little smiling face little thing that the teacher put on me. Yay! Now, I'm not trying to be literally. I'm trying to say people are at different stages and whatnot. But you can't stay at the kindergarten stage forever. You'll never grow spiritually. And can't you... Uh, Convince a kindergartner of pretty much everything? Can you do that to a fourth grader? Absolutely you can. They're very easily deceived. We have to get them to advance spiritually. It majored in the use, speaking about the Old Testament, of tangible, something you could touch, see, deal with, like the tabernacle temple. So they couldn't understand that Jesus Christ was going to die for us, that he was going to be robed in flesh. So God gave them a picture. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. Here's a picture of the brazen altar. Here's a picture of the brazen laver. Here's a picture of the candlestick. Here's a, all of those were pictures because they needed a picture book because they couldn't understand concepts that were not in front of them. They had to have rights rules and regulations. All right, we're going to give you 613 rules. Now, we're going to expand upon this. Why does anyone need 613 rules? Because they're children. Amen. How many of you adults have on your refrigerator at home a list of rules to keep you in line? I will not cheat on my wife today. Whoo, I'm glad I read that one today. <sighs> that could... Do I need a reminder of that? Why not? Because I'm an adult. Those of us who have children, we have to keep reminding the kids of the rules. Why? They're children. They need rules. All right, new rule. Don't climb up in the middle of the night to go grab the Pop-Tarts and lick all the icing off and then put it back in the box. New rule. Why do you have to have a rule like that? Because they're children. Adults who are mature don't need rules to do what's right. Does that make sense? So what we're dealing with is biblically illiterate people who need to be told what to do because they were immature. So we're going to tie this in. So if someone, some religious group starts majoring in the Old Testament and starts working that to say this is how our religion operates, then we know that we have a problem. 
Because the Old Testament is not for mature people. It is for babies. It's for kindergartners. It's for people who are not spiritually mature. You understand? Okay. I'm hoping this is setting them light bulbs on to kind of explain what we're doing compared to them. The whole system is suited to the picture book stage of Revelation. They don't have a Bible to refer to. They don't have the Apostle Paul to interpret. They don't have the book of Hebrews. They're at the place where they're just barely getting out of bed taking care of themselves. They have to have a rule that says, listen, don't kill. Why? Because, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like you have a rule with the kids that you're out. Don't hit your brother. Why is that a rule? <laughs> because they're going to hit the brother if you don't tell them don't hit your brother. We're, we as adults can laugh at that because we dealt with our kids. Yeah. Or maybe you would have the problem of not hitting your brother. And you knew you are going to get in trouble and you hit him anyways. You, you understand? There should be a maturity that grows up now. These elementary lessons had their time and their place, but have been replaced with the gospel. The gospel has replaced all of it. Now we understand with the gospel becomes a lot more maturity and intangible. We have never seen Christ. And yet we're expected to believe in something we haven't seen. Why do, we have a, why do people have a hard time with that? Because they're kindergarten level. But those who have maturity can understand the concept that God robed himself in flesh and died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine because I could not do it myself. And I can readily accept that even though I don't have a picture book in front of me. Does that make sense? They belong to a time where people of an emphasis of faith who could only handle milk. That's why when we read inside of the New Testament, we get a lot more stronger doctrine. Because we should be able to handle it because we don't need pictures. We can understand concepts. This age is for grown-ups who can handle the meat of the word. The rudiments of the world represent a retrogression, not an advancement. So if you take someone like Seventh-day Adventist, Mormons, uh, even Catholics, that go back to the Old Testament picture system, it is not improving in Christianity, it is bringing it back. All of this was ridiculous because it was not after Christ, which is the whole idea. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, but not after Christ. That's the whole heartbeat. Is it following after Christ? Their thinking either left him out or misrepresented him completely. Yet the Gnostics were offering it in terms of human reasoning. Hey, we're going to explain it better. Doesn't it make more sense the way that we say it? Oh, sure. Because they're showing them picture books instead of bringing them maturity. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Notice the next verse, verse number nine. For in him dwelleth all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What does that mean? That Jesus Christ was God robed in flesh. And every aspect that God had, Christ had. Jesus is God robed in flesh. The Godhead has set up permanent residence in the body 
of Jesus. They are the same people. You cannot separate them. They are one and the same. The church is also his body. Christ is the head of the church. This truth is more clearly developed in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, talking about this relationship of Christ and the church and the importance of it. Again, another intangible that we can understand with maturity. The cult of Colossae was offering to complete the Christian believers with a secret knowledge. The truth is, is we're already completing Christ if we're following after him. Now, you've been patient with me. <laughs> I've got five points. That was the first one. But I told you this is more college level. But this is necessary. So if you continue to be patient with me, God's given me grace with my throat, with my nose. Let's go on. And I think the rest of it should flow a little bit more smoothly. We notice that next of all, if you don't mind, in verse number 10, uh, sorry, <laughs> if you don't mind, notice with me in verse number 8. Uh, scratch that. Verse number 11. Thank you for your patience. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision um, of Christ. Notice, if you don't mind, as we jump down all the way up to verse number 17. Which are a shadow of things to come. What we understand here is Paul is hitting this second point. That he is explaining that the Old Testament things were a shadow of things to come. And what he's going to deal with in this segment here is dealing with ritualism. Ritualism, verses 11 through 17, is going to deal with this idea of ritualism. What is ritualism? Ritualism has the idea of certain rituals you must do in order to be saved or be right with God. The Old Testament system operated in rituals. They had lots of rituals. The death of Christ rendered all Old Testament rituals obsolete. When Christ died, the veil of the temple was supernaturally rented to, symbolizing and heralding an end to all the rounds of ritual. That we no longer have to go to the temple to get access to God. We have access to God to ourselves. We don't have to do a special magical handshake. We don't have to bring a sacrifice. We don't have to make an offering. We don't have to do any of those things the Old Testament people had to do in order to be uh, with God. Elementary school was now closed. The Old Testament picture book would not serve as a source of illustration for New Testament truth. We are no longer occupied with types and shadows. By the way, the temple. Was the temple Christ? It was a type of Christ. It was a picture. It was a shadow. Was circumcision Christ? No. But it was a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, so people could understand the relationship between God and his people, that it was very special, that they were set apart. There was a lot of these rituals that were pictures of Christ. But why do I need a picture when I could talk to Christ myself? Amen. For example, in my wallet, in my phone, I have a picture of my wife. Would I rather hang out with a picture of my wife or would I rather hang out with my wife? Now, for me, it could be different for your household. I'd rather hang out with my wife than a picture. You understand? Why do I need a picture when I can hang out with the real thing? When I can be with the real thing? 
Paul goes after one aspect of this issue, circumcision, in uh, Colossians chapter 2. He's already won this battle before, but he figured he'd kick the cat again just to build on the known to the unknown. He'd already battled it and won it, but once again, circumcision, if you didn't know, is a painful surgery uh, operation administered to infant Jewish boys when they're eight days old. It was a sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a physical uh, sign that was physically done to a child to let him know all the rest of his days he belonged to God. It was a reminder, physical reminder, that he belonged to God. Gentile proselytes to Judaism were required to be circumcised, meaning that they had to have this circumcision done in order to be a part of Judaism, in order to picture be part of those types. Jewish Christians had to give up the idea that Gentiles had to become Jews to become Christians. You don't need to become a Jew to become a Christian. You become a Christian by following after Christ, not a set of rules. So therefore, Gentile believers did not have to go through circumcision. It was not needed in order to be right with God. Christianity is not spiritual Israel, as some people claim. It is a brand new entity altogether. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. Now, I'm going to give some statements here, and I want you to think about this. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. We are supernaturally saved from our sins. We're not ritualistically or ceremonially saved. We are supernaturally saved. I am forgiven by an almighty God who forgave all of my sins. Nothing else could do that. That was God and God alone. We are supernaturally born again. To have the Holy Spirit who is God come to live inside of me and make me a new creature when I become born again. I can't work that up myself and no ritual can make me born again. It is the moment that I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior that He accepts me. And to prove that I'm accepted, He puts the Holy Spirit who is God into me and part of me never to be taken out. That is supernatural. We could live supernaturally by the leading of the Spirit. I don't have to trust myself. I could trust God's supernatural leading. Everything about the Christian life is supernatural. One day we will supernaturally be raptured out of this world. It's not going to be a physical device or some time machine or vortex that we build. God's going to say, let's go. And we're going to be gone. Supernaturally, meaning that God did it outside of nature. Praise the Lord for that. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. In the view of this, the idea that a ritual could have any saving or sanctifying value, whether it be the Jewish rite of circumcision or the church ordinance of baptism, is false. There is no ceremony to make me supernaturally saved. There is no ceremony or ritual I can do to make me born again. That is God's job and God alone. I don't have anything to do with it. I just accept the free gift that he gave me and he does all the work. It is God's work to do. I can't do anything to help him out or to go alongside with him or to do it for him. He has to do it himself. In Colossians chapter 2, as you go through that passage, he then turns to baptism. Baptism is a picture of what Christ did for us rather than the ceremony of doing anything to merit favor with God or transferred saving power. For example, when we baptize people here, before they can be biblically baptized, they first have already trusted Christ as their Savior. You say, then why are they baptized? It doesn't wash away their sins. 
It doesn't make them a new creature. Then why get in there? Just to see if you're going to be obedient in front of people. To get into a tank of water that doesn't save you. And to do it because God said so. It has no saving merit. It just says I'm willing to follow Christ and whatever he's given me to do. God did the work already by saving me and I accepted that free gift. Baptism doesn't save anybody, nor does it keep me saved, nor does it wash away my sins. Rituals do not save. And yet how many Christian religions out there claim that you have to be baptized in order to be saved? Once again, this thing has already been wrapping itself into Christianity for a long time long time. In verse number 13, it is Christ who quickens or saves us. The uncircumcision was our state that we had no covenant or promise from God. We were withheld hope and yet Christ forgave us anyways. As people who were Gentiles, why would God even mess with us? The only reason is because he loved us. There was nothing I could do to make myself accepted in God. He paid my price. He gave me new life. All because of his goodness. Verse 14, it talks about the handwriting of the ordinances. This is the case against us. This was the sin that was blotted from our account. The phrase blotting out is a reference to a custom that was very common in Paul's day. This phrase had to do extensively with the records written on papyrus. Papyrus is reed paper that was pressed and dried, then used as a writing material. Sometimes it was necessary to be erased, to erase the writing, and then to write something else in its place. The first writing was blotted out by wetting the face of the papyrus carefully with water, then when it was moistened, rubbing it gently until the surface was peeled away and the tiny balls of damp paper. This removed the top layer of the papyrus, and when the material dried, the second message was to be written. The law that ruled from Moses to Christ was blotted out by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That the rules and what I was guilty of for the wages of sin is death. When Christ died on the Calvary, he blotted all of that out. He paid my price. Never to be owed anymore. I'm going to fast forward past this other stuff. You could go back and see our things about manuscript writing and our history of the Bible thing for more details. In verse 15, Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers and dark forces. They are all subject to Christ. May I remind you that we don't live in a dual, uh, duology, meaning that the forces of good and the forces of evil always have to be in balance or the world's going to cave in and whatnot. There's no such thing. Christ is the boss and all of them have to bow to him. Satan is not as powerful as Christ. Satan has to give an account to Christ and one day will be punished by Christ. Satan is subject and has to obey even God to this day. Today, there is much confusion in the church from the failure to distinguish between the Mosaic law as a standard and the Mosaic law as a system. Now we're using terminology. What are we talking about here? If you put the Mosaic law as a standard, then what happens is that you feel like in order to be right with God, you have to live by these rules. If you understand that it is a system, that it was for those people at that place of that time, then we can learn from that system, but we're not subjugated under it. The Old Testament law was like the constitution of Israel. We're familiar with a constitution in America. We have a constitution that rules us. It applied for that nation, for that time, and for that place. 
We may learn things about God and from the people from that constitution, but that constitution doesn't apply to us. For example, I'm a citizen of the United States. If I go over to France, am I necessarily subject to their constitution? Do I have all the rights and privileges that a citizen of France has? Not at all. It's a different constitution for a different people. If we understand that the Old Testament law was the constitution for that new nation of Israel, then I have less of a problem with it. I can learn from it without feeling I'm obligated by it. Now, there are principles we can learn. For example, God said, don't kill. Is that a principle still applied today? Yes. Okay. Do I need a rule to follow that? No. no. I just have to follow Christ and I'm not going to kill anybody. The Bible says uh, in the Old Testament not to commit adultery. All right. Do I need a law to follow that or can I just love my wife and look at Christ? Amen. All right. So as long as I lo love my wife and I'm looking at Christ, I don't have to worry about the adultery part, right? It's all about keeping our eyes on Christ. If I'm looking at Christ, I'm not going to do the things that are wrong. I don't need a bunch of rules. I just have to keep following after Christ. All of the Old Testament was a shadow or pictures of things to come. All it was was hinting about Christ. Judaism is the shadow. Christ is the substance of the shadow. We've all tried to step on someone's shadow, right? Not many of you were successful on it, where meaning you stepped on it and the person kind of jerked and, whoa, get off my shadow. Why? There's no substance to that shadow. What is the substance? The body that casts the shadow. Amen. All of that other stuff was just shadow. Christ is the substance. He's the real thing. And so you could spend all your time looking at shadows or you could spend your time looking at Christ. Amen. We come to the third thing where it talks about no, let no man beguile you of your reward. And we're going to switch to the topic of mysticism. The Apostle Paul is going to spend some time trying to correct and prevent the church of Colossae from getting absorbed up into mysticism. Mysticism. And Colossians chapter number 2. <laughs> and if you don't mind, notice with me in verse number 18. It says, let no man beguile you of your reward. Here it's given a thing. Don't let someone steal your reward from you. Don't let someone get you stuck into mysticism. Verses 18 and 19 is going to speak about this mysticism, the spiritualism that was creeping up into the church and by the way is very much alive in American Christianity. The cult of Colossae had the same strands woven to its fabric like the modern cults. Not only did they boast of superior reasoning, but they also had special revelations. Revelations that no one else had. In this passage, Paul deals with mysticism. The idea that we can have extra biblical revelations from God. That God gave me a word. This strand shows up in Romanism and its traditions. Let's pause. A lot of the traditions in Romanism came from some lady who had too much pepperoni pizza and had a bunch of dreams, wrote it in a book, and then it got woven into the Roman Catholic Church. I know that's a simplistic firm. That's been a lot of mysticism that's gone into it. But it's not biblical. Someone just had extra pepperoni pizza. Even today, they love mysticism. My tortilla chip looks like the Virgin Mary. Everyone take a picture of it. Hey... I drew a picture of the Madonna and child on my wall and all of a sudden my kid turned invisible. That was something in the paper the other day. 
So they're very much into mysticism, all special things. I bet, why study your Bible if you're looking for signs? I bet they actually have people that go around to try to validate miracles because they're looking for something. If you saw some statue crying blood, would you rather spend some time investigating that or reading your Bible? The idea that people are always looking for supernatural things. You take Mormonism. Mormonism's fun. So this guy was out in the middle of the field. Some angel kicked him and said, hey, I got some uh, golden tablets over here buried. What should dig them up? Oh, cool. Dig them up. Hey, this is Hebrew language. I don't ever read Hebrew before, but all of a sudden I understand it. I know I'm going to quickly write it down. Oh, the uh, the tablets, golden tablets, they disappeared. No one could validate them. But all of a sudden I've got this whole thing that an angel told me about what happened to Jesus Christ after he rose and how he went to the American Indians and went and explained to them about more about stuff. Cool, 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 cool. You see, by the way, that was the 1800s. That means for 1800 years, people didn't have the truth. That's a big deal. You have the Jehovah's Witnesses, 1800s. Hey, I got some revelation of the Lord. We found out that Christ was not really God after all. Woo. Hey, and because of that, guess what? There's only 144,000 that are going to heaven and you're not one of them. Great. I want to join you guys. Uh, you know, they, they come up with these things, but that's, they all come from extra biblical revelation. You look at the cults and you look at where the stuff, and they all come from things outside of the Bible. Someone didn't have enough uh, uh, Starbucks coffee. Someone had too much pepperoni pizza. Someone just didn't get enough sleep. Someone was on drugs in a cave somewhere. and They said, keep writing, keep writing. Spiritualism and its claims to communicate with the dead. Oh, this was a very big deal, 1800s. Hey, let's go ahead and speak to it. By the way, uh, Jezebel, I mean, Hillary Clinton, she's very spiritual. She uses Ouija boards to talk with the spirits and get advice. She would love to get advice from Eleanor Roosevelt. She's, by the way, Southern Baptist or Methodist, I think. You understand that this is still a big deal. People are looking for secret, spooky, spiritual knowledge. Oh, if I get a word from the dead, if they could tell me something, if I could get to the other side. The charismatic movement is very big on this. When they speak in tongues, they say, I got a word from the Lord that God has given me some extra biblical knowledge. And now let me tell you what it is. And they believe that their word from the, from the uh, Lord is equal to or above what the Bible says. So if you say, hey, listen, what you just told me was against the Bible. I don't care what the Bible says. I know it's true because it happened to me. They need to check that out. They need to be very careful, but they are very big. The, the charismatic people tell you, you are not saved unless you've spoken in tongues. It's a sign that you're not truly God's people. You have to go through this thing. Depending on which uh, church you go to, they'll either train you or poke you or whatever. It, it's, it's amazing all the stuff that happens. And then you get some people on television who says, listen, I got a word for the Lord. I got to build me a hospital and you need to send me in your money. And then after getting all the money to build the hospital, all of a sudden the word for the Lord told him not to do that and he closed it down. And then he had a dream for another hospital. He tried to build a hospital five times, pocketed the money each time. That does a lot for the cause of Christ, doesn't it? Yeah. And you look at them and you go, those are crazy. I know they're crazy. They make the rest of us look crazy because that's what people think Christianity is. 
The believers at Colossae were in danger of being led astray by other people's dreams and visions and their claims to have experiences and extra biblical revelation. By the way, we work hard on this. We know that some of you have come from different things and we're very patient with you, but we don't accept someone's testimony that said, well, I went to bed one night and I woke up and God said, you're going to be fine and that's how I know I'm saved. That's not a proper testimony. Was there a time that someone opened the Bible and showed you from the Bible that you were a sinner? And we understand we're very patient with people because we know that they're caught up in this stuff and we have to detox them out of it. We have to work with them and be very patient with them. And even from time there, I woke up and God told me that I'm in trouble. Okay, do you have any Bible from that? Then it's probably pepperoni pizza. You're fine. And we, we, we work with it. And we're not trying to be mean. But this is so ingrained in people today that they, they rely on visions. They rely on dreams. They rely on signs. They do all this other stuff. It's better than reading your Bible. I'm thankful that God has given us fact. I hope you guys aren't checking out on me now. and oh, well, I'm, I'm kicking everyone equally as the Bible says. So, you know. But these are things that we have to deal with all the time. Now, even though Christianity is supernatural, dealing with a supernatural person in Jesus and the Holy Spirit, there's another supernatural dimension in the universe headed by Satan and another supernatural being. He is motivated by the hatred of Christ and he is determined to deceive the very elect. So if you have a spiritual force that hates God and knows that people are gullible, do you think that he's going to do everything he can to give them experience? Yep. Absolutely. So many people naively believe that if it's supernatural, it has to be of God. I can't tell you, I've, I've had missionaries who show up to the charismatic movement and they go, uh, they listen to all the people speak in tongues and they turn around and say, that is the most filthiest language I've ever heard in Chinese ever before. Oh, was that from the Lord or was it from someone else? You understand? Where is it coming from? How, what is actually being said? Just because it's supernatural, and by the way, there's a lot of supernatural out there. It doesn't mean it's from God. Amen. Satan loves supernatural experiences because people are easily distracted. If you saw a ghost, you'd be worried about the ghost that you saw for years rather than read your Bible. Yep. Satan knows how to deceive people. The word beguile means to defraud. It carries the same idea of an umpire's decision against a competitor. So someone says, well, I think I'm true on the Bible, but what happens is that someone beguiles you, overrules, you're not safe, you're, you're out, and overrules that decision. You let someone overrule your thought. Well, I guess it really was a ghost that sent from God that told me I had to go kill my mother. Okay. I had a, a young man. He went to the Marines. And we already know that the Marines already reprogram your mind. He went to Bible college for a short time. And then he believed in the middle of the night that God sent him to go burn down the, uh, the local porno shop. Well, that didn't do well for the Bible college. I mean, what are we trading out there? That was, no, this guy wasn't us. And you know what happened? The porno shop was falling apart. Guess what? The insurance money came in and they built it bigger and better. Did it really help out? Not at all. It gave us a black eye. You understand? But he, he just felt convinced. God told him in a dream that he had to go burn it down. 
we have to be very, very careful out there because <laughs> this is what people are doing. It overruled natural decision. It overruled. It, you're, he defrauded them, stole it from them. The cult was already advocating the worship of angels. We see that here. Let no man beguile you of your reward in the voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Those who were practicing this forbidden activity, by the way, as a reminder, the Bible forbids you to worship angels. I don't care what your Roman Catholic background was and that your favorite thing was the angel portrait. I, I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive, but you understand a lot of that garbage gets in there. People worship angels and the Bible says don't worship angels and they're doing it anyways. Those who are practicing this forbidden activity were pretending to be very humble about it. Well, I don't want to brag, but you know, me and Gabriel were talking the other night and we were just talking about world events. And, okay. Old preacher, uh, I'm not going to say his name, worldwide node preacher. He said he was getting ready for a worldwide campaign. And uh, he was flipping through the channels of the television. All of a sudden, an angel appeared while he was laying on his bed and said, hey, I want you to preach this tonight. He said, okay. And the angel disappeared and he kept going through the TV channels. Is that what an angel encounter is really like? According to the Bible, if we saw an angel, we'd all be ducking for cover saying, woe was me. You understand it's not this idea that television has done, whether it's touched by an angel or highway to heaven or whatever generation you grew up in television things you want. I don't care. Michael Landon is not, you know. All right, cool. I'm really making fans tonight. But the people were very, that was a good time to say, uh-huh, cool. All right, so those who were practicing this activity were very humble about it. Yes, I saw an angel. I was touched by an angel. Oh, yes, the angel guided me, and I have this special thing. And don't you wish you were as cool that angels spoke to you too? True humility is a dependence upon the Lord, trusting in Him, knowing that He is God and that we can trust Him. False or carnal humility is averted pride. <laughs> Listen, I've got secret knowledge, but I don't want to brag about it. God is so good. Uh, the phrase intruding into those things which he hath not seen carries the idea that the cultist poking his nose into an occult mysteries which he knows nothing about. It's amazing the cults, they have entry level that they only give you some knowledge and then they go up. If you've never read the book Struggle for Peace, I'll make sure that you get a copy. It's about a Mormon who became uh, like an eighth degree Mormon and it revealed what kind of knowledge they had. And they went, oh, I thought I was a Christian the whole time. I am not. And how they had to get out of there, but they never had peace. Uh, masons are very big on this. Do you know that Muslims have masons? Well, are they worshiping the God of the Bible if Muslims can be masons? And they're supposed to be worshiping? You see, things don't connect. And once you get to a 13th level mason, you start realizing you're actually worshiping Satan the whole time. Oops, but you're too far deep to get out of it and they're going to kill you if you try to escape, so oops. Yeah, that becomes a big deal. This is carrying the idea of a cultist who's poking his nose into occult mysteries about which he knows nothing about. By the way, the occult is real. Satan is very real. He loves to offer power. But there's always a price tag and it will cost you a lot more than you ever expected. 
The word intrude is used of initiative being inducted into the mysteries of a pagan god. These mysteries made the person vainly puffed up. <laughs> I'm a Mason. <laughs> I'm a Mormon. I'm an eighth degree Mormon. You're only one degree. They, they become very puffed up because of the status they had. Listen, the, the more that we get in Christ, the more I realize, man, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I'm the big mi miracle of all that God even chooses to use me when he should have just struck me dead a long time ago. The boasting of experiences others <laughs> were not granted become an inflated for your pride. Listen, I'm more spiritual than you and I could prove it by my black belt in Mormonese. Good. People today have a craving for the supernatural and sensational. All you have to do is turn on a television and you'll find something talking about ghosts, supernatural, hunting, hauntings, whatever else. You give it enough time, even the cooking shows will start talking about hauntings and whatnot. I, just, we live in a culture that people want to know more about the supernatural. It's because they rejected the Bible, so they're looking for something else. Satan majors on experiences. If people have an experience, they will dwell on that experience and not seek after Christ. The point is, is that people will regard experience more important than Scripture. Once they leave scripture, then they become open to attack and false doctrine. They become very vulnerable when they leave the Bible. Stanton Moses, a leading spiritualist of his day, this is what he said. It has one been one of the chiefest difficulties to uproot false dogmas from your mind. Speaking about true Christianity. So long as you reply to our arguments with a text, with the Bible, we cannot teach you. Well, thank you for letting us know the thing. He said, listen, if you know your Bible, we can't confuse you. Amen. We can't steal you away. Now, he thought he was right and you're wrong. But he says, we can't convince you that you're wrong as long as you st keep answering with the Bible. So once again, the greatest thing you do is a daily basis is to read the Bible for yourself. You need to know what the Bible says so they can't fool you. You need to know what it says, not what your pastor believes it says or what you think the church believes. What do you know about the Bible for yourself? This is why scripture is always under attack. When scripture is taken away, then people are vulnerable to the false doctrine. Right now we have false versions of the Bible. Why? Because people say, well, it doesn't matter what Bible it is. And they get on shaky ground and then now they're vulnerable. People can pick them off. They instead intrude into areas that they have no business going. Well, I don't even know if my Bible's true, so I might as well go explore something else. True unity doesn't come from compromising doctrine, but it's when everyone's looking at Christ. Everyone's looking in the same direction. The cults work at replacing the Christ of the Bible with a different Christ. Oh, we all believe in Christ. You do not. We're going with the Christ of the Bible. Believers are called upon to hold up the head, which is Christ, the head of the church. The more the body, the church, increases Christ, the more that the body increases in strength. What does that mean? It can't be just the pastor who knows his Bible. The more of you that know your Bible, the stronger this church will be because we're all looking at Christ together. If we stop looking at Christ, we become vulnerable and become weaker. This is why it's important that everyone reads the Bible for themselves. It's not dependent upon the pastor. It is dependent upon all the members of the church to be, know their Bible, to be discipled, to have the habit of obedience to Christ, and to purposely advancing forward. 
One more thing. You guys have been very patient. The Bible talks about why ye are subject to the ordinances, speaking about legalism and asceticism. This is in verses 20 through 23. <laughs> the cults are always attempting to tie up believers with the cord of legalism and asceticism to reduce Christianity to a list of rules. Most people want a set of do's and don'ts. People said, just tell me what my rules are. Do this, don't do this. They want rules. But listen, Christianity doesn't have rules. <gasps> doesn't have rules. No, you look after Christ and follow after him. And if you follow after Christ, you don't need a list of rules. That's kind of simple, isn't it? But that's not what Christianity is. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is a personal relationship with a loving God. If we're following after Christ, we don't need a list of rules. Legalism, as a definition, carries the idea of the things you must do to become saved or keep saved. So in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. That's legalism. In order to stay saved, you have to give at least $10 to the offering plate. There are some churches that do that. I know there are some churches that, that will ask for your... Uh, 1099 when you file it up so that way they can make sure that they got all the money from you. Ah, <laughs> that's, uh, by the way, that's Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Thank you. <laughs> there are other people that do that too. We don't do that here. That's your own decision to follow after God or not follow after God. <laughs> Asceticism is the idea of stringently denying the body its desires. The body needed to be starved scourged or made to suffer. That if I want to be right with God, I have to take a cat of nine tails, a whip with nine straps, and I have to beat myself. I just have to beat the sin out of me. Martin Luther did this when he was looking for peace. He beat himself to a bloody pulp, almost died beating himself, trying to beat the sin out of him. There are a lot of people today, the Philippines, people will nail themselves up to a cross and hang up there to try to get the sin out of them. I'm thankful I don't have to do that. I found in this last week, I'm less tolerant to pain than when I really want to be. Forget this. I don't want to go through that. Forget that. I'm so thankful that God took all that sin away from me. I don't have to beat it out of me. I don't have to go starve it or made to suffer. By the way, even fasting. Fasting isn't trying to say, God, I'm really serious with you. You see how bad I'm hurting myself. Please answer my prayer. Fasting is for us. It's to realize that I'm so frail and weak and that I'll fall apart without God. I need God and I'll cling on to him more. Not because I've now earned his favor because he looked at me and said, oh, poor guy. He was trying to say, I'm trying to get you to depend on me the whole time the first place. You cannot use the flesh to eradicate the flesh. I know you may not need to write that down, but you know, this is something you need to understand. You can't use the flesh to eradicate the flesh. You can't make your flesh behave by forcing it to behave. Meaning, I knew a preacher who was used of God, but he woke up in the morning to, uh, to cold showers every morning. I'm not that spiritual. He said, man, my flesh wants warm, warm showers, so I'm not going to give it what it wants. I'm going to find a different way to die to self. I'm, you know, I'm, maybe I'm just not that spiritual, but I don't like that warm shower. Uh, I, no. But you know, we're not trying to beat our flesh or 
cut our flesh or do something to get it to obey. It's recognizing I can't do it. I need Christ to put myself to death because I can't do it myself. This is why the cult's rules don't work. Our part is to be dead with Christ, to allow Christ to guide and direct our lives. The word rudiments, once again, it's used again, carries the idea of elementary rules. Trying to live according to a set of rules is childish stuff. We've kind of go back around. You don't need a list of 613 rules. You need to just follow after Christ. Make it simple. If you need a list of rules and things to do and don't, things to don't, this is why some people, they, when they try to make standards, the list of rules, the idea of spirituality is how long your dress length is. Then you, you've gone beyond what the Bible says. You're putting spirituality into a list of rules. Standards are there to protect us, not to show our spirituality. But trying to live to a bunch of rules is childish stuff. Now, by the way, if you're following after Christ, I'm following after Christ. Christ is not going to tell you something different than he told me. For example, you're going to like, I don't think I should go to church three times a week. Well, if you're going to be biblical, they met every day. How about that? <laughs> but, you know, people will come up with some thing of why they're not supposed to obey. Well, listen, if you're looking at Christ, I'm looking at Christ. We will be following the same thing moving together in unity. Good. We should mature past a set of rules. We should mature to the place where our eyes are upon the Lord and we follow after him. Once we start along a road of rules and regulations, everything else has to be spelt out in greater detail. By the way, this is where our Baptist realms start going into. I know a church sort of nearby that now doesn't allow people to come in if they don't have dresses on, if they're ladies. Well, what if they're not saved yet? They may not know any better. They might not, why, we're a hospital. We're trying to help people that are hurting. Amen. But once you start doing that, then you start going, how far does the dress go? Does it go between here? Does it go here? Do you wear leggings underneath it? You know, you start to have to spell out every single little rule. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I understand for certain things, we, we put in rules for the idea of influence. For example, forgive me, we say for men, we're asking you to wear ties even on Wednesday night who are leadership. If you're not leadership, it doesn't apply to you. You just come as you are. But for those who are leaders, we're asking you to do that for the idea of influence. Does that make sense? Not for the idea of spirituality, but for the idea of influence. But if you're not a leader of the church, we're just glad to have you. Keep coming. No problem. Does that make sense? We're not trying to dominate people's lives. We're trying to get people to look at Christ. And if you're looking at Christ, we'll have no problems with you. That makes it simple, doesn't it? You just go step by step by step. Just keep your eyes on God. Just keep looking at Him. I'm thankful that God makes it simple. We make things complicated. By the way, we like to make things complicated all the time. Keeping things simple. New Testament deals with principles and not a list of rules. For example, there are some things we might be well advised not to touch, like alcoholic beverages. We know that there's no passage in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not drink alcoholic beverages. But there's enough principles in there that say, You know what? I'm not going to do it. I don't need a list of rules. 
Well, preacher, smoking's not in the Bible, so I can go ahead and smoke. But there's a principle in there. You don't need a list of rules, big baby. Look at Christ and ask his permission. If you get his permission, you do whatever because you're going to have to stand before him. Preacher, should I get a tattoo? Uh, Listen, look at Christ, follow after him, and it makes things simple. We don't need a list of rules and regulations. There are principles God has already given us in the Bible to kind of guide us. He didn't leave us helpless. He said, here's some principles that you live by the principles. Look at me and you're fine. He kept it simple. I'm glad I don't have to carry a rule book and say, wait, 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 wait. My boss just asked me to do something I didn't think was right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Before I answer you. I could say, I'm following after Christ. Lord, give me wisdom. And I can expect that if I've been living in the principles, he'll give me the right answer. Does that make it simple? I don't have to follow with a rule book. We don't need a list of rules as if we were four-year-olds. The Christian has been set free. That's a big deal. We don't have to do this and do that and do that and do that. We are free. We have the liberty to follow after Christ. The liberty to follow after him. Man-made rules like touch not, taste not, handle not, which is in that passage, perish with the using. What does that mean? That means eventually they're going to mess everything up. You put a bunch of rules in there, people are going to find it. And there's lots of people, maybe some of you are like that, that you would always look for the loophole. You would spend a lot of time trying to find how you get around it just because. An interesting observation is that when doctrine, the word doctrine is referring to God's teaching. It's always in the singular case. That's why we believe in Bible doctrine, not Bible doctrines, not this plural. When it deals with false doctrines or the doctrines of men, it is found in the plural. What does this teach us? God's teaching is one superb organic whole. There's not many Bible doctrines. There's one doctrine. And we follow after Christ. And we learn about what does the Bible say about Christ? What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about angels? What does the Bible say about the Bible? We learn those things, but there's only one doctrine because it's an organic whole that belongs together, not separate issues. The system of rules and regulation breaks down because of what it comes from, men. Men make things complicated. A show of wisdom is talk. They desire to have a reputation. Now we're talking about the people who know all these things. To enhance their reputation for holiness, they neglect their bodies. There are a lot of people who like to show how spiritual they are by how they've neglected their bodies. How they, I haven't, I've been fasting for 40 days because I want to be close to God. Man, here's a cheeseburger. (laughs) I don't have to starve myself in order to be close to God. I don't have to go through a ritual in order to be close to God. You know what I have to do? Keep my eyes on him, read my Bible, and do what I'm supposed to do. God makes things simple. We make things complicated. All of this will worship, by the way. I'm worshiping how strong I am by not having my cheeseburger for the 40th one day. They're, They're... Showing how their will is being worshipped. I got the willpower to be spiritual. Which means self-imposed or self-inspired worship. It was a personal choice and not of God. God told me I could eat a cheeseburger. 
If I choose not to eat a cheeseburger, it's my personal choice, not because I'm trying to get closer with God. Amen. I want a cheeseburger now. In the end, flesh is there as a fierce, as strong, and as wicked as ever. Why? You can't put flesh to death by the flesh. Amen. It can only be put to dead, death with God. I can't make my flesh die. So with this being said, this is a lot of stuff. What we're trying to do is hopefully saying that you're maturing. After all of this, are you maturing to the place that you ought to be? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.